Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. The struggle for women's right to vote is often thought to have been waged on a national level. But how was this movement transnational? In what ways was international travel important to women's agitation for the vote? And how did women move between nations to inspire and challenge each other? If they stayed local, what helped them to feel part of an international community? Our conversation today focuses on those questions with two historians whose work has pioneered the dynamics of transnational feminist history. James Keating is a historian of 19th and 20th century Australia and New Zealand, whose research interrogates local, national, and international feminist movements. His book, Distant Sisters, Australasian Women and the International Struggle for the Vote, 1880 to 1914, was published in 2020 by Manchester University Press. Sumita Mukherjee is a historian of 19th and 20th century transnationalism, mobility and migration in South Asia, Britain and the British Empire with a particular focus on gender. She's based at the University of Bristol and is the author of Nationalism, Education and Migrant Identities, The England Returned, published by Routledge in 2010, and Indian Suffragettes, Female Identities and Transnational Networks, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. James and Sunita met over Zoom in conversation with History Workshop's Rosa Campbell. Uh, and just thank you so much for both joining me. Um, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so let's let's start. Can you lay out for listeners how the history of women's suffrage is usually told and the intervention that your work makes? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, I'm sure James will have a much better answer to this in terms of how it's normally told. But um, my appreciation of history, the history of women's suffrage, particularly in the British, American and Indian contexts is, well, particularly in the British context, the American context, is that it's often portrayed, especially in national contexts, but also in quite kind of specific ways either biographies organizational histories kind of local approaches often like quite contained defined typed histories when you do have histories of kind of internationalism and international suffrage there are organizations as well again so they're quite mm. um, yeah defined contained precise in many ways um, like not messy if that makes sense and in india there isn't really much history of suffrage at all the history of suffrage is told within the history of women's rights and um, nationalism and mm. uh, a fight against independence. But very little is, has been done focusing particularly on women's suffrage. Um, so what I did in my book, uh, which is called Indian Suffragettes, was to really try and think about, while well, focusing on Indian women, how they engaged with suffrage in broad transnational networks and we're engaging with discussions around suffrage in different geographical spaces really trying to think beyond suffrage as just a kind of national concern and just the ways in which suffrage campaigners were engaging in yeah in different spaces transnationally internationally globally 
um, across the early 20th century. So that's what I tried to do to kind of challenge some of those yeah, precise, as I put it, um, histories of suffrage. Oh, I think that was a, a fantastic answer. I'm a little daunted to, to uh, respond. Um, I think my work broadly has a, a dual remit. Traditionally, the suffrage movements in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and Australia, which were one at the level of what became the nation in 1893 and 1902, respectively, uh, although in Australia it's better thought as a series of colonial movements, have been understood as simultaneous but uh, separate national phenomena. And this history is a, is a product of the push from the mid-1970s onwards, uh, led by feminist historians, among others, to, to rethink the overwhelmingly masculine national narratives that developed in these places. And it meant that I grew up in New Zealand with the story of women's fight for the vote as part of my historical consciousness. So I think what my work tries to do is to recover an overlooked regional suffrage history, situating the colonial suffrage movements in the six Australian colonies in Aotearoa, New Zealand, side by side, and showing how ideas, tactics, personnel, emotions circulated in this space. And at the same time, it tries to, to think about Australasian suffragists' dedication to fostering international connections, particularly after they won the vote, in the, in the hope of producing a more expansive history of women's internationalism. My, my subjects are uh, white settler women, by and large, who identified with the Australasian region, though many of them or their parents were, were born in Britain and Ireland. As other historians have documented, these activists often felt marginalised in domestic political life and, and thus drawn to transnational engagement. And they weren't content to confine themselves to Australasia when the world, or at least the English-speaking parts of the world, beckoned them, or they felt that it beckoned them. I try and, I guess, like Samita, document individual, collective and institutional ways that international connections were fostered, and to use Australasian connections to help see the, the broader structures of feminist internationalism more, more clearly, to think about why Antipathy and women wanted to organise internationally, why they felt that their, their early enfranchisement behooved them to help to struggle in, in certain other places, and how they confronted the limits of the international women's movement as well. And um, what... What were those limits? So how were international suffrage networks sustained and what difficulties did they face? I, I see international suffrage networks as sort of overlapping sets of emotional, political, uh, social and economic relationships held together by, by personal institutional bonds. For me, they sort of develop out of a series of what some people call proto-feminist international networks that mm. crystallise into formal organisations, some of which have suffrage at their core and some of which suffrage fits into a, a range of other kinds of politics. Australia and New Zealand were among the few countries represented in Washington, D.C., when what became the International Women's Suffrage Alliance was inaugurated in 1902, and were notable then for being the group's only enfranchised members. These organisations are sustained by annual meetings uh, and sort of bigger showcase conventions and almost pageantry, if you like. Distance didn't prevent Australasian women from contributing to these organisations, but meetings were pretty much always held in North Atlantic cities and, until well after the period I write about into um, uh, the interwar years and beyond. So attending an event was a significant test of, of a delegate's financial and familial freedom. So people might only attend one or two in their lifetime if they came from Australia or New Zealand. And I'm not sure how, if this was the case with uh, Indian women as well. But uh, as a consequence, Australasian women were often represented by British-based proxies, which was was both acknowledged and lamented at the same time. Another significant barrier was, was the sort of organisation. I write a lot about liberal internationalism, I should note. And it was organised around national participation. And for Australia, this posed a problem, which is that 
Australian feminists felt allegiances to, to the former colonies or the, the colonies as they existed. And choosing one or two women to represent all women of the nation after Federation in 1901 posed significant problems. Disunity within the Commonwealth wasn't of Australia, wasn't well understood by women overseas who saw it as a single country and perhaps really even just still an offshoot of Britain. And these tensions manifested in disputes over representation mm-hmm. over whether the former colony, say somewhere like New South Wales or Victoria, or the new nation should be the political unit that, that feminists were organising from, who should represent whom. And all of these things hampered Australian suffrage's ability to play a wider role within the suffrage movement. I should also say that distance led to creative ways to sustain international bonds too, which I, I might talk about a little bit later. And I'm particularly interested in, in the way that we can see these intimate bonds through letters. We can read their aspirations, desires, and fears, particularly in the ways that they exchange photographs, scraps of newspapers, and, and things like organizational songs and symbols. We can see how solidarities were forged in, in spite of these, these, mm-hmm. these troubles. And, and what about for you, Samita? What about for your actors? How was... Yeah, as, uh, as James is saying, there the are different ways in which uh, Indian women can engage in international networks. Correspondence and newspapers are really important kind of first steps. Um, but also, as James said, how the kind of official international suffrage organisations or international women's organisations were very much based on organisational membership. Um, and so that was the case also for Indian women who had to be part of either a British organisation or an Indian organisation in order to to gain access. Um, so what you really see is it's not only issues around finance and language and the ability to travel that limits the, the kind of kind of women that can engage, but also it's just networking in, in the kind of the, the kind of modern sense of which we understand networking of like knowing people. And that is, I, I think, one of the really important things to remember and you, you, which you, you see through these histories of these organizations because there is such a repetition of, of kind of key players. Um, and the kind of the power they hold in terms of who they know and how those kind of introductions are made, uh, which allows people to, to gain access to both national and international organisations and then arrive and, and meet physically if they wish to at international organisations. One of the difficulties in the kind of post-First World War periods, which I look at, for um, Indian women is that they are often invited to attend national suffrage meetings and other organizations, other international women's organizations. They have, you know, engagement through correspondence as well in newspapers and so on. But there are clear hierarchies, not only in terms of that kind of idea of networking and, and who knows who, but also in terms of race, in terms of ideas of empire, of coloniality, ideas of the nation as well, who is a participant of a nation. In my case, and what I look at a lot is, although a lot of Indian women are invited, engaged, present in these networks, either physically or kind of on the page, they are often also ignored, marginalised, stereotyped, exoticised, othered um, in various ways when they are present. So I guess that leads very nicely on to my next question, which is that Um, sometimes there's a bit of a reflexive celebration of transnational activism and I guess your work both of your work troubles that in a way and why why do you think that that troubling is important so what do we I guess Sumita you've just kind of laid out that what we see when we trouble that is differences in terms of race maybe in terms of personality as well if you think about even networking cultures today and who gets rewarded I suppose 
in those cultures. So yeah, could you just talk a bit more about about that, the re that reflexive celebration and how your work challenges that? Yeah, I mean, I was really keen in my work to, like, to do two things, to actually highlight the presence of Indian women and to show that they were there and that they were engaging and the ways in which they could actively engage and you know push themselves forward present themselves present their ideas about suffrage about internationalism about feminism about women's rights and citizenship and, and just you know various kind of ideologies and theories that they were capable of doing this that they had their own ideas that they were able to influence these networks themselves that they weren't just objects in mm -hmm. this but um i guess and i even when i started out with this work but as as especially as I went into it more and I presented the work a lot, I, I, I got quite troubled by this idea, as you put it, this kind of celebration of this activism, the celebration that Indian women, you know, were <coughs> invited, involved, and, and how that kind of at the base level, lots of people would say, well, that's great, doesn't it? <laughs> it's great that Indian women were involved. It's great that women of colour uh, were engaged. It's great that women from Atoria were, you know, that there's kind of an international, transnational activism that people are meeting and exchanging ideas. And unless you, unless you recognise not only the people who aren't included and weren't invited, but also the ways in which a lot of control was put over the, those meetings and, and the ways in which voices could be expressed then you're not really doing justice, are you, <laughs> to, to these histories and to these ideas of feminism. And I think it's really important that we both contemporaneously and historically provide challenges to these celebrative narratives of feminism mm. and women's rights and these kind of progressive narratives as well, uh, which is, you know, as James was saying earlier, that that's kind of the early model is so much on this kind of progressive narrative of suffrage from initially from a masculine uh, perspective and then a, a kind of a woman's perspective into it. Can I just ask you, if, if it's okay, can I ask you to just give us an example of where control is exercised at one of these meetings, just for our listeners who might not be so familiar with this? Yeah, um, I mean, I can't off the top of my head yeah, yeah. all the details. Um, but just, um, so for example, in many of these International Women's Suffrage Alliance meetings, in the early 1910s, when Indian women were initially invited, they weren't um, allowed to speak at the main meetings they're actually they're invited to attend but they're explicitly excluded from speaking at the kind of main council meetings and they had um, alternative sessions for them to speak at which weren't kind of part of the main proceedings if you think about kind of official organizations which have agendas and meetings and uh, you know um, resolutions and so on the Indian women were allowed to speak at those to those main agendas or resolutions. So their agendas, yeah, weren't included. So that's the kind of control that the, the leadership were placing upon them um, in the early years. That is so, that is fascinating. It reminds me when you say that, it reminds me of the later meetings of, on the UN, uh, of the UN conferences on the status of women, where they have the official UN conference in 75, 80, 85, and then 95 in Beijing. And then they have the NGO forum, which is the forum where um, women from unofficial organizations are, are allowed to speak. And it kind of shows you, I mean, often those forums are actually the most interesting part. And maybe that's the case as well with, with your actors, your women, but what it shows you is what the official agenda, what the official organization is not interested in. So it reveals like the limits of their, their focus, their vision, I suppose. 
Um, thanks so much for that example. James, did you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think if if you're attentive to the ways the nation hasn't been a home for, that feminists have always felt comfortable in, and it's a political category that's hemmed in the ways that feminist activism has been understood, it's fundamentally mm-hmm. important not to just replace this with a set of transnational myths. So, and I, I guess that was uh, what Samita was saying too in the position I started from. I was lucky enough that when I started this work, it was far enough into what some people call the transnational turn that, that a body of critical work already existed that I was I was building off. Mm. So, and what, what the archive I've used or what I might call the archive is, is full of silences and gaps and, and we should be careful not to reify it. But one of the themes that's clear in the sort of letters, organization reports, diaries, photographs, souvenirs I, I looked at is that transnational suffragism, to use a word that Samita used earlier, was often messy. And my work, I, I perhaps might've taken a more celebratory tone if I wasn't confronted by this, this uh, the constant mess in those documents and the ways that activists often express their ambitions and their frustration. And I like to think about the opportunities and challenges that Australasian women faced when trying to forge these intercolonial international bonds uh, and the ways they, they navigated disunity uh, at home with the costs and benefits of traveling abroad. And, and they did often overcome uh, these difficulties, partly because as, as white mostly evangelical Protestant women, they, they, they were, to a certain extent, more included with what later up calls the international we, mm. in, in ways that, that meant that they, they often weren't as, as excluded from the kind of meeting within the meeting, so to speak. But attending to these struggles, and in particular the paradox that, that fighting for suffrage wasn't always a transnational struggle, like, like a movement for, say, peace or the prohibition of, of alcohol mm. or opium, but it was a battle that was fought in specific colonial or national contexts is important. And, and I think a particular challenge that Austra- Australasian women faced is, is right after they were enfranchised, they made a series of quite bold promises about world leadership. But at the same time, women at home saw the vote as, as a tool and, and turned their mind toward using this for, for reform and, and change and could turn away from the international in certain ways. And I think none of this should be taken as an approach which focuses on, on failures or, or elevates missed opportunities above successes, but, but kind of really qualifies what we think of as transnationalism through the materials left behind by suffragists. Mm-hmm. So we can think about its attra- detractions of this, these kinds of connections as well as their, their tribulations. So how did, how did internationalism touch the lives of women who were more rooted? So who didn't move so freely? James, you talk so much, like well in your book about this, about how like emotional rituals and emotional bonds that women had were very important. So yeah, just wanting you to talk a bit about that. Yeah, thank you. I became very interested when I was writing the book in the sort of emotional traces of internationalism and, and what internationalism signified to people at home. Mm. And I think it was made manifest in intimate ways. So, so personal letters were read aloud at meetings, and perhaps they shouldn't even really be thought as personal letters, but they were often shared among, among groups of women or read aloud. Sometimes they were published in, in ostentatious ways in, in feminist newspapers. Particularly well-connected individuals often collected scrapbooks or photographs of distant individuals or organizations and shared these on their mantelpieces or turned them into presentational objects, which both existed to kind of make internationalism manifest and also perhaps to show off the breadth of their own connections and their ability to make those kinds of connections. I obviously don't know how much such displays resonated with, with those who didn't travel, 
but I think there's clearly a consistent effort to advertise this part of the movement and to make it manifest in, in um, ordinary women's lives. For women who are part of groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, they, they developed a series of kind of international rituals. So there was a sense that all of their, what they called departments of work were replicated from pretty small colonial towns all the way up to, to um, what they called the World's Union. Their newspapers blended local and international reportage quite deliberately. Personnel move, did move across borders, even those women who didn't move would have been in, in contact with, with women who did. And they had a series of everyday rituals too. So it was an evangelical organization. They would all read the same prescribed Bible passages on the same day. And they also had this thing called the uh, noontide prayer hour, which is this idea that everywhere around the world at noon. I think the other thing too is that women who did travel, particularly from Australia and probably from other places too, traveled on the donations of, of those who, who remained at home. So, so Vida Goldstein, who is one of Australia's most famous uh, feminists from the suffrage era, traveled to the US in 1902 uh, on, on the back of small donations from readers of her newspaper. She kept those donors abreast of what she was doing through regular columns and, and magic lantern shows when she returned back to Australia. And other people did funded their travel in similar ways. So it was always travel from, for most of the one I write about was, was not really an individual effort so much as a collective effort that was, and a kind of writing about travel was a means of accountability to, to, to the woman that, that, that they believed they were representing. And telling kind of tales about travel was expected of almost everyone who returned as well, uh, both as a source of entertainment, but also as a way of allowing those interested to, to, to connect themselves. Can I ask what a magic lantern show is? It's a, it's a good question. Um, I think there are other terms for magic lanterns that are not coming to me off the top of my head, but it's essentially it's kind of a slideshow, if okay. you like. So okay. she would have, Goldstein would have about 30 or 40 slides of kind of tourist attractions across the US, some photos of, of uh, feminist things and, and some sort of ones which were, were intended to be a bit more titillating. It was a sort of a popular form of entertainment. I'm not quite sure how they were made, but I know there's a bit of research going on here at the moment about the kind of magic lantern culture and what it meant. Great. And Samita, what about, what about women in India? Women who stayed, who didn't really travel, how were their lives touched by internationalism? Yeah, I mean, James put it really well. Um, especially towards the end, there's, there's loads of similarities between what was going on for Indian women and women in Australia and New Zealand. Equally, you know, there are donations are really sustaining a lot of the international interactions and travel. So lots mm. of so-called local Indian women are very much invested in the international travel of Indian women to engage in suffrage discussions. And it is very much a collective effort, as you know, as James was saying, because it all boils down to thinking about suffrage, particularly it's, it's all boiling down back to the kind of local national context of winning the vote within your own context, despite these transnational international conversations and I think similarly with Australia New Zealand India you know can't forget you know has that colonial context mm -hmm. so so much of, of of how Indian politics and interactions and discussions for those who stay behind who, who live in India and who don't travel is inflected with looking to Britain looking to the rest of the world looking to other parts of the empire so that that kind of you know going back to the question of just broader question of internationalism and transnationalism in this period. So much of Indian politics and, and broader politics at the time is so inflected with 
transnational international because of empire because empire in itself is this transnational international mm. beast that everything that happens in britain or internationally engage around discussions of the vote around politics is, is automatically affecting those to stay behind mm. so they are invested as said in those discussions so as historians of global feminism i think we often try to remake the nation so we're quite adept at remaking space and thinking about the porousness of nation states and maybe what moved and was exchanged in terms of ideas, in terms of people, in terms of texts that move across borders. But I wonder about, and maybe we also talk a bit about betrayal of ideas as well, or what didn't quite make it, or what was mistranslated from the intention of the, of the original author. But I wonder about time and temporalities. And Samita, you talk about how actually some of the Indian women who were agitating for suffrage didn't really think of their agitation or activism as about being necessarily future driven or stepping into something that had never happened before, but rather a kind of return maybe to a past and, and the Vedic, particularly the Vedic age. So I just wondered if you want to talk a bit about that. And then James, I'll ask you as well to talk about any temporalities in your work. Yeah. So, I mean, Discussions around suffrage, especially in the late 19th and 20th century, is so much bound up with the nation, but also bound up with this very modern democratic idea of what the vote means, you know, with a kind of a yeah. bound up with a modern democratic assembly, you know, a parliament, you know, whatever it might be called. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And citizenship within that modern nation as it's being reformulated mm-hmm. and, and imagined. But, you know, around the world, women had engaged in a kind of voting mechanisms before the, the, the introduction of the so-called modern vote, uh, mm. as it were. And, you know, you see this, you know, across the world and in various different geographical contexts. So Indian suffragists who were discussing, you know, the, the right to the vote and the, the need for a vote uh, had multiple ways in which they could position themselves and put forward this demand. And some of it was based upon this modern idea of the nation and, and their role as, as modern women, who, you know, the kind of standard idea of, of their modernity. Um, some of this was based on this kind of just general idea that women had voted in village councils and, and other kind of uh, more local forms of voting. So they, you know, they understood the, the need to vote. But it also um, derives from something which is quite specific, I think, to the Indian context and the Indian colonial context and the international nationalist context in the 20th century, where a lot of Indian nationalists in their fight of anti-colonialism and their repudiation of colonialism of specifically British, modern British and other modern European colonialism in the Indian subcontinent, have to, in their imaginings of what a new Indian nation might be, they have to try and find some kind of symbols and ideas of an Indian history and of an Indian unity uh, before British colonialism. So they look a lot to the Vedic age, to eras before uh, successive waves of colonialism in the subcontinent, where they can point to examples of village council voting and, and political participation by women. And also they can point to ways in which perhaps uh, modern patriarchal systems hadn't been introduced where those ideas of divisions of labour between kind of two binary genders weren't so static, where women had various different positions of power were engaging in the economy, society and politics on, on equal and on you know, their own terms. And to show that, therefore, that, that 
as you said, Rosa, that demanding the vote, demanding rights for women was not this novel new idea that had been introduced by liberal feminists of the Western world, but mm. actually there were traditions um, and histories within the subcontinent that they could draw upon. Go for it, James. Um, no, I was just, I was just uh, thinking for a second. I think that um, perhaps my, my answer flows from the end of Sumitra's answer, which is that one of the ways that time features in my work is that the sense of racing that had become the first place in the world to enfranchise women featured in both intercolonial dialogue and did motivate Australasian women to, to see themselves on the world stage. And they had this real sense of living in what the historian Marilyn Lake calls progressive new worlds which was tied to deeper ideas about the ways that they might avoid some of the hierarchies of the old world and, and, and lead the way in the creation of new ones. As, as Samita has suggested, celebrating suffrage firsts is and, and was it as a fraught endeavour. Firstly, there's always someone else with, with an earlier claim, and I, I try and trouble the reflexive celebration of being first in Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So places mm -hmm. like Wyoming or the Isle of Man, people argue, might, might have been earlier, depending on how you, how you kind of cut the cake. And other places had a much more immediate connection between women's enfranchisement and parliamentary representation, like, like Finland, for example. Although the Nordic countries too have their own problems with um, citizenship disqualification and, and the receipt of, of welfare. But women in Australia and New Zealand struggled to enter parliament for a variety of reasons until the 1930s and 1940s. And, and what this leads me to is something that uh, Louise Edwards and, and Mina Rosiers uh, point out, which is that this kind of notion of suffrage time and focusing on a paradigmatic year of victory that bridges disenfranchisement and, and sort of full citizenship is, is really not a useful way of understanding feminist mm. struggles. In many parts of the world, suffrage was only a viable option after independence had been won. Mm. Uh, suffrage can be revoked uh, in various contexts. And in Australia, to give just one example, focusing on 1902 for federal enfranchisement ignores the really shameful web of legislative mm. exclusion and bureaucratic obstruction that prevented uh, First Nations people and First Nations women from voting in mm. some cases until 1965. Uh, so it's useful to both think about the ways that white suffrage has thought about time, but also to, to, to trouble those rather than to sort of celebrate their, their victories as they, as they might have understood them. Okay, yeah. In both your work, you discuss suffragettes' use of language of family to describe one another and themselves. So they talk about being daughters of empire as and as sisters, and they refer to Britain as the mother sometimes. And this is very evident in the Australian banner, which reads, after white Australian women were granted the vote, trust the women mother as I have done. Um, so I wonder what the language of family does here. So having titled my book, Distant Sisters, I'm, I'm complicit in the dissemination of this kind of family lexicon, even as I hope my title offers a bit of a, a caveat here too. Rosa, as you note, the, the mother-daughter analogy on Dora Meeson Coates' Trust the Woman Banner, which I'm actually writing much more about at the moment, mm. conceptualise this relationship between Britain and Australia in, in familial terms and in, in hierarchical familial terms. At other moments, British suffragists did refer to their sisters in New Zealand, and, and in both places, Britain remained in a mother country for most of them when I write about. And it's hard here not to see the bonds of obligation and affection, influence, as well as certain tones of rebelliousness, negation, and exclusion too. The WCTU took this concept further, and its leaders, its white leaders, evoked a sense of what they called universal sisterhood, that, that bridged location, race, and class. And this was, for them, a useful rhetorical tool 
And I don't doubt a felt expression, which was used to build a kind of solidarity and a sense of belonging around the assumption of shared gender depression, which was important for a diffuse global network. Mm -hmm. However, as, as Samit has mentioned, and as other scholars like Leda Rupp and Fiona Paisley have, have shown, the International Women's Movement was very hierarchical. Women from Aotearoa, New Zealand and Australia paid much more attention to their sisters in, in some places than others. So particularly the UK and the US, and particularly among white women in those places. And the assumption of shared goals usually went hand in hand with a kind of stadial idea of, of feminist development. And while the WCTU prided itself on an idea of racial inclusion, this was at the same time that they, they operated uh, segregated branches in, in the southern United States. And this yeah. rhetoric of sisterhood papered over the ways that its members worked in service of the progressive project of entrenching white monopolies over, over power in, in, in societies too. So it's, it's a complicated sisterhood. And is that, is that the same for you, Samita? Is it, is it a complicated sisterhood? Yeah, very much. And as James said, it's very much this language of family and sisterhood is especially one that is put forward by white women. So although Indian women that I look at do often replicate the idea of universal sisterhood just because it's such a, a well-worn term and terminology it's not something that I feel and I'm thinking about it recently that they that they particularly introduce themselves or yeah they don't particularly introduce themselves in, in their different kind of dealings it's very much when they're kind of replicating or speaking to those discussions of so-called universal sisterhood and the mother kind of language of mother 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 Britain mother empire that's kind of a broader thing that they engage with just because it's again just a well-worn trope of empire at the time but uh, yeah I think the family dynamic is that the, these are they're, they're sisters, but they're as we, as we discussed, they're, they're excluded from so much that there's it's not a, an equal um, equal family in any way. And do they? What do they say, for example, like when they're excluded from speaking at those big international suffrage meetings? Do they feel like they have to go anyway as a strategic decision? What do they feel and say amongst themselves about that? Um, yeah, so yes, they feel they still have to go. They have to be present. You know, that's a big argument. Just, you, you know, you've got to you stake your claim. You've got to show yourself. That's the only way you're going to you get your voice heard. Um, but they are aggrieved by it. They're aggrieved of it for a number of reasons. They're not only aggrieved of it because of the racial overtones of it and the ways which they're being shunted, but kind of related to that because they feel they have, they have things to say that, you know, they're being ignored and that they're not they're just there as spectators, as just objects, as pretty girls or women to just invite, but they actually are intellectual equals in the, in these, in these discussions and these fights and that they should, they have examples that they can tell to actually teach um, others. And that's, I think, where a lot of the agreement comes from. That's great. I also wanted to ask you if you don't mind, Samita. In your book, there's a there's a moment where Indian women are included in a big suffrage parade, but other colonies aren't. If, if I've got that right, is yeah. that is that right? Yeah. And I just wondered if you could speak to why that was, why they were in some ways included, even in this, even if it was quite like tokenistic, and and racist, I suppose. Yeah, um, and this is something I really tried to draw out at certain times of the book is that the hierarchies relating to race and empire and which uh, the Indian women are involved in or are kind of included in are, are ones that the Indian women also complicit in in times mm. as well. Um, so in a kind of very basic idea of hierarchies, there's the idea of white women at the top, Indian women next, and then 
black women and first nation women below them and you see that coming out in the ways in which indian women and japanese women are invited to these conferences before women mm. from africa and the caribbean you see this in the ways in which african american and first nation women are excluded in various ways in their national and international contexts and the ways in which indian women sometimes speak up about it but sometimes don't and, and you know again this it's important to note those those tensions and the ways in which, as I said, they're complicit as well. So this, there's a particular suffrage procession that takes place in London in 1911, something that I've written about uh, quite a lot mm-hmm. in various different formats, where Indian women are invited to attend as part of the celebration of empire. Um, but there are no women from, so the women from South Africa, but white women from South Africa, but right. no other women from the African colonies, no other women from representing people, women of colour in this, this parade. And there's multiple reasons for this. One is this idea of hierarchies and the Indian women come first. But also it goes back to what I was saying uh, much earlier on about who do you know and who how were introductions made. So there's quite a sizable Indian elite presence in London by the early 20th century for various reasons, because of empire, because of a growing settlement of, of people in South Asia, a growing kind of professional class. So there are increasing contacts being made between British feminists and Indian women who, who come to the to, to Britain. Mm. And although there's also an equally large number of, of black women from Africa, from the Caribbean uh, in Britain at that time, they aren't, they don't have those similar contacts with elite British women at the time. So when British women organize this parade, they invite, they, it's easy for them to invite any women that they know. They want to, they say they want to invite women from black African women, but they just don't know any. So they don't have those that ability to invite and, and include and introduce them because they, they don't mix in those kind of same social circles. And is that because of class that they don't know them? That those black women are less wealthy? Is that why? Or is there another reason? It's a mixture. It's, it's class um, mm-hmm. and it's race. Mm-hmm. It's, we would say these, these, these yeah. um, categories intersect. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's largely is class. Is is good, but it does go back to again these ideas of hierarchies within mm. empire. The ways in which India is defined as kind of jewel in the crown. There's much more engagement by British feminists in this time with Indian issues as well. I think some of the, the issues around women's rights in India, for some reason, just feel more immediate to British women. Right. So the ideas of perder and seclusion and bailing and illiteracy and all those kind of stereotypes about Indian women are just ones that British women are just much more interested in they feel more informed about because there's much more interest in orientalism and kind of orientalist texts about the Indian subcontinent mm-hmm. where they feel less informed about the kind of vast you know in their imagination this vast expanse of Africa where they, just, they don't have the ability to engage with debates about feminism and women's rights in the different specific geographic contexts of the African continent. James did you want to just mention or did you, did you just want to say a few words about how maybe the relationship between Pākehā or white New Zealand um, women and Māori women in terms of the struggle for the vote? Because I think one of the things that sometimes people know or learn about suffrage is that Millicent Fawcett, who's a kind of peaceful suffragist from Britain, is perturbed when Māori women are given the vote. Now, you can do some myth-busting if that's actually a myth, but I certainly learnt that, I suppose, when you first start to understand how race makes gender, sometimes that's one of the things that you learn. 
Yeah, so as far as I know, that that is correct. And certainly Fawcett had, as I talk about in my book, even with uh, Pākehā or, or white settler suffragists in New Zealand, she had a kind of uh, an awkward relationship with them and, and certainly sort of found them to, to be unsophisticated in various ways. But so, so Māori women were enfranchised on the same terms as white women in New Zealand. This doesn't necessarily mean that they were always included within the suffrage movement. This is this is an area of ongoing research. So, so in New Zealand, there was a series of giant petitions, which were really the sort of one of the combinations of the suffragist effort. And more recent, mm. particularly genealogical research is going back and discovering more and more names of, of Maori women who did who did sign these petitions. But Māori women were also, the suffrage movement was kind of coterminous with the Kotahitanga movement or, or uh, the Māori parliament movement. So there's an argument that actually this spoke to Māori women's aspirations in particular ways that, that the uh, settler suffrage movement did not. The settler suffrage movement was, was largely urban movement. I think that all of the things that Samita was talking about, about connections, hierarchies, the, the social ways that, that that kind of class and, and whiteness operates together were, were still in play. One of the things that enfranchisement of Māori women does is it makes organisations like the WCTU much more interested in Māori women because, because they have the vote and they have political power, which, which the WCTU can harness. And it does employ bilingual uh, organisers. It starts to, to, to write parts of its newspaper in te reo, or the Māori language, in order to attract Māori women. And there's a historian in New Zealand called Phoebe Fordyce who, who um, is doing some, some great new research on this. But there's also a certain kind of colonialist way, obviously, that, that Pākehā women interact with Māori women. So in particular, one thing that I came across in my research was they send a banner, a New Zealand banner to, to Chicago WCTU's world headquarters emblazoned with, with Māori script on it. And, and there's a certain kind of revelry in the way that Pākehā report that, that the Americans couldn't understand what was written on it. And that they almost appropriate certain parts of indigeneity as a way of making themselves distinct but without, of course, reflecting on them, themselves as colonisers. So, so a, a kind of a common theme here is that during travels to the United States, white Australian and New Zealand women will often reflect quite critically on, on the Jim Crow South and, and, mm. and sort of report themselves appalled at, at racial discrimination and, and, and forge personal connections with, with individual black women. And particularly some New Zealand suffragists were very moved by, by Ida D. Wells and, and moved by her story to kind of to kind of press the WCTU to end its, its own segregationist policies. But they didn't return from these trips and understand themselves as colonizers who were upholding similar kinds of power relations in New Zealand or Australia. Yeah, they didn't read it onto their own context. Yeah, that would take for most, not for everyone, but for, for most women in the feminist movement, that would take uh, a generation or two, uh, probably until the interwar years when, when this beginnings of a more critical self-understanding would come about. Okay, so this is for Samita. So I'm interested in the way that expression of multiple identities in your book. So for example, Indian suffragettes as nationalists, um, as imperial subjects, as international women, and as part of a sisterhood seems to reveal their political agency and their kind of moving between these identities. And I just wondered if you could speak a bit to that. Yeah, and I, th I think you put it well that I'm really interested in how they, they can move between those multiple identities. I guess, again, it's a product of the time that they have these multiple identities um, because they are both colonial subjects and aspiring to be Indian nationalists. And I think the diversity of India also 
allows for multiple identities to emerge, which can bring women together, but also can separate them. And they, they try, they're constantly trying to navigate you know, different religious identities, class, caste identities, vernacular identities as well. Um, so they, I think the Indian women in this, in this time are adept at shifting between those identities and speaking to different audiences and courts at different times and kind of presenting themselves in different ways to different mm. audiences. And so I was yeah, interested in how they, how they can kind of, I guess, manipulate that or maybe manipulate is not the right word, but use it to their advantage to push forward their agenda around suffrage. And I think it just relates also just to the ways in which we think about, again, you know, say before, like kind of modern days ways which we use intersectionality and, and kind of multiple identities that we are, you know, I say as a collective, we I think people are much more interested in, in thinking about and interrogating. So I've, I've always been interested in the ways in which people think about those different identities at different times and how they use them for different purposes. Um, clearly, all people have multiple identities within them at all times as well. Yeah. It just struck me so much that it was like really an intervention that was kind of speaking against the way that they were sometimes seen as very like flat or one-dimensional by white women in empire. Mm. Um, and so I just, yeah, I, I love that intervention. Um, okay, final questions. Can you tell us about a surprising discovery that you made in the archive that changed the way you thought about your work? Sure. I think I've probably had a few surprises in the archive, but one that really speaks to me is uh, the National Library of Aotearoa, New Zealand in Wellington. Very early in the project, I came across a letter from the British feminist and social reformer Josephine Butler, which was written mm. in 1895, just after the enfranchisement of New Zealand women. And I'd sort of naively expected that it might be some sort of congratulation or, or sort of message of solidarity with New Zealand women. Instead, it was this kind of really furious tirade, speaking to what she thought the supposed defection of New Zealand women from the global campaign for the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts. This is a complicated story. In New Zealand, the acts had been dormant for a long time, and they were not a feature of colonial women's activism because they prioritise other goals. But what happened in brief was a disgruntled British activist living in New Zealand had invited Butler to intervene. She had been marginalised in, in colonial feminist circles and it revealed these kind of undercurrents in international organising that people could use these, these kind of global channels to, to influence local disputes. And there was also the sense, as, as Rosa, you mentioned earlier, that in, for some in Britain, colonial activists had obligations to the metropole and they couldn't always be trusted to take the correct position and that's, that's something that someone like Fawcett would have felt as well <laughs> and, and in, in New Zealand there are a range of reactions to this some of which range from a kind of a, a colonial position of embarrassment and, and the feeling they need to apologize to Butler for, for having let her down to other women who felt furious at what they saw was an unwanted intrusion into their politics and as I, as I mentioned earlier this galling experience would not see these same women rethink their own imperial assumptions about women in other parts of the world. But it alerted me early on to the, the sense of the ways in which feminists might misunderstand one another, either, either willfully or, or, or by mistake. And, and the kind of sensitivities involved in, in this kind of international organising too. Um, yeah, and I uh, equally had lots of surprising discoveries <laughs> or like things that hadn't been expected in the archives. <laughs> I love the archives. <laughs> I think one of the, um, I guess, one of the most important discoveries that I made, again, kind of early on in my project was in the Nehru Memorial Archives in Delhi, I, I came across a whole collection of letters 
from a mother and daughter, Herabai and Miss Antatio, who feature quite a bit in my book, who visited London in 1919 to, to present a uh, kind of resolution around suffrage to, to the British Parliament. And I hadn't really been expecting to see, to see such a, a kind of a chunk of correspondence where they are writing back to a friend in Bombay about their experiences in across Britain. And it's a really detailed a file of, of letters where they really reveal the extent of their engagement with British feminist organisations and other organisations across the, the breadth of England and Scotland across 1919. And they really, I think it was really important for me at that time to see that, to, to show there was viability in that project, my project at the time, and just to show the ways in which, as I was saying before, like Indian women were engaging with these debates and these discussions and trying to forward and put forward their own agendas and shape shape the debates as much as they were recipients of advice so yeah that's important for me okay tell us a bit about what's next for you both what you're working on yeah so I'm I'm working on uh, <laughs> uh so no, I'm trying to work on children the children from the Indian subcontinent who were migrating to various parts of the empire I'm really interested in thinking, having discussed before about issues of identity, how age also inflects mm. um, ideas of coloniality and the ways in which children were engaging in political rights, political activism and anti-colonialism as migrants in different geographical spaces. So that's um, um, in the early stages of uh, project around that. And James, what about you? So I... As I mentioned earlier, I've recently become quite interested in the memory and memorialization of suffrage in Australia and New Zealand and beyond, as well as the sort of history of suffrage exclusion after supposed universal suffrage. And in Australia and New Zealand, this work is really about the ways that suffragists preserved memories of their activism, the ways that they didn't, and really thinking through the extraordinary influence of British suffragette, and in particular militant suffragette mythology upon antiquity and history, and particularly thinking through the purchase of the Dora Meeson Coates Trust the Woman Banner by the Australian government in 1988, as a way of thinking through objects and using them to think about public narratives of enfranchisement and the kinds of stories that circulate about suffrage here now. So a common thing you'll see in Australia and New Zealand is people, people will sort of use the, the visual iconography of certain parts of the British movement to stand in for the Australian and New Zealand movements. Now, I'm not so much interested in, in criticising individuals for doing that, but thinking through why we've got to, to, to this point and why countries that, on one hand, seem to be very proud of the, of the suffrage story, but on the other hand, in public, the sort of artefacts and language of, of the suffragists themselves does not really cut mm, through. Great. Okay, so whose work are you enjoying at the moment? What other historians are you working with or really getting a lot from? I really loved Hazel Carby's Imperial Intimacies. Mm. I think that a lot of listeners will probably be familiar with, with her work. Uh, if not, it's, it's an incredible work of uh, history and autobiography that traces the intimate effects of imperialism on the lives of, of the author and, and her parents, and, as well as her ancestral connections and even tracing her, her last name back to, to the plantations and both slaveholders and enslaved people in Jamaica. It's, it's a kind of a, a really brilliant demonstration that the person was always political. In my own work, I found Margaret Henderson, her scholarship on feminist cultural memory in Australia to be very helpful in, in constructing a kind of historiography for the Dora Meeson Coates banner. And, and the way she, she talks about what she calls feminist things to think about past and present iterations of history making and telling. 
And I've also really, actually, I often find reading outside my field to be very degenerative. I recently read the Irish poet Ivan Boland's memoir, Object Lessons. Aside from all the other reasons you might read it, it's very useful to me in thinking through the ways that being marginal to an intellectual tradition, she's talking about the tradition of, of, of poetry writing or the bardic tradition in Ireland, can confer critical advantages, but also the importance for feminists of avoiding the comfort of a national tradition and being, being very critical about the way that the, the national tradition politicized certain identities and certain realities and relegated others to, to, to the margins or even worse. And that's something I found to be an important reminder for me. And how about you, Sumita? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm kind of really interested in thinking about, and you know, a lot of people are thinking about this anyway, but how, how historians think creatively about the archives and the marginalised voices. So I've just recently started reading Tia Miles's All That She Carried. I started at the back because I was encouraged to start at the back with so in her final chapter, she talks about her methodology. And it's a really interesting reflection about how, think about material object, which is passed down through generations of enslaved uh, family, and how one it reads diagonally against against the archive to think about how one draws out different voices and different perspectives. So I'm really excited about carrying on with reading that, uh, that over the summer. And just recently, I thought that Julia Late's The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey was a really brilliant book as well, thinking about using multiple archives across different geographical spaces, about foregrounding women's voices and women's experiences. I really enjoyed that recently. Super. Okay, the final question is, can lessons from your work be drawn from for today's global feminism. We are recording as Roe versus Wade has just fallen in the US, pretty tough time globally in India as well. And things have been very tough in Australia, definitely. Maybe they're a little bit better now, but maybe not. So yeah, just reflecting on your work and how it can draw lessons for today's global feminism, if it can. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if lessons can be drawn. Um, as you said, Rosa, there are multiple challenges for the feminist movement at the moment. I would say just that, and again, this is something that, you know, I think lots of people have been talking about in the last few years, but often still, I guess, needs to be reiterated about how, as, as you know, one of the questions you were discussing before, this kind of celebration of feminism and the celebration of feminist activism, even the present day, I think still needs to be challenged. I still think we need to think so much more about the ways in which hierarchies are still present, about the centrality of certain voices, especially the centrality of the, the West, the global mm. North, or whatever, however you want to put it, or the kind of Anglo-American world, and the ways in which there's still, as I say, someone who's based in Britain, how there's still so much more to learn from the global South about collectivism, activism, and I still don't, I still don't feel that those voices are often... Uh, foreground enough, whether within our scholarship or within uh, kind of contemporary moments of activism? Yeah, I think this is a really tricky question. Maybe um, <laughs> I, it's perhaps a bit old-fashioned, but I, I am moved by Adrian Rich's argument about the value of showing feminist activisms have a long history and that we might situate present efforts within a, a particular tradition, which doesn't always seem on the surface like it's always been there, but it has built on itself again and again. So these histories might in some small way give present activists a sense that the movement has not only a history, but a global history, global meanings, global possibilities, and show, show how transnational feminisms operated in the past, the ways that solidarity, 
to operate at the value of patients, industry, curiosity. And at the same time, to, to pick up on Samita's argument and one that um, Lucy Delap made in her recent history of global feminisms, it's important to think through feminist differences in perspectives and, and priorities. It was and remains a very complicated and broad movement. And while recognizing the people that I mostly write about lived about 100 years or more ago, and that with historical distance comes a very different set of, of values and priorities. It's important that we do take heed of past and, and present feminist blind spots. And with history, maybe it's not a case of just impugning past feminists as a way of showing that, that we're different or, or we've, we've changed, but be clear about the way that categories, intersecting categories, race, class, uh, education, gender, sexuality, fundamentally shaped feminist projects, led others to, to challenge them in, in generative ways. Uh, and led people excluded from those projects either to to forge their own ones or, or renegotiate projects. And we should we should keep this in mind uh, all the time, I think. Many thanks to James Keating and Sumita Mukherjee for taking part in this conversation. You can find links to their work on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.